name is Jenny Healy, and this is my podcast called Let's Think About It, where we're going to discuss culture-responsive teaching and the brain and the effects that it has on learning. There are seven parts to this podcast. First is the overview of the issue. Next, we will go into research and importance of the research and education. After that, we will discuss theoretical framework. After that, the neuroscience. After that, the language and the brain structure. After that, the linguistic diversity in education. And then finally, we will conclude with references. First, let's talk about what culture-responsive teaching is. Brown University describes it as a pedagogy that recognizes the importance of including students' cultural references in all aspects of learning. In the Brown University website, they reference the Lance and Billings 1994 publication, The Dream Keepers. From my own research and thoughts about culture-responsive teaching, it means bringing the student's own background, culture, and identity into their learning. It's the teacher's job to create moments for those students to get meaningful connections to their lives and what they're learning. This is a chance for teachers to bring in that aha moment where students can make those connections with what they're learning in school and their everyday lives, whether it's through reading, social studies, math, science, the students are able to make those connections to their own personal lives. The notable research that supports culture-responsive teaching is information behind student-centered learning. Student-centered instruction and learning differs from teacher-centered instruction. Teacher-centered instruction is where teachers have curriculum that is taught only by the teacher. Student-centered learning is where the student is in charge of their own learning. They decide what they want to explore more and are given opportunities to research information on their own and gather more information by themselves. Student-centered learning and culture-responsive teaching go hand-in-hand. They're both student-focused. Student-centered learning is described by Brown University as cooperative, collaborative, and community-oriented. Student-centered learning encourages students to take charge of their own learning. Some examples of how that can be possible is for teachers to promote student engagement and by sharing responsibility of instructions. There's more examples of how teachers can support student-centered learning and can be found on the Brown University website for student-centered instruction. The part four of this podcast is going to be about theoretical framework. The theoretical framework that can support culture-responsive teaching is best described by Zaretta Harmond and her Ready for Rigor visual. In the center of this visual is a circle surrounded by four quadrants. The center of this circle has students are ready for rigor and independent learning in the middle of it. A smaller circle around that have four parts to it. 
the first part is affirmation, and the second is instructional conversations, the third is validation, and the fourth is wise feedback. Of those four quadrants, the four quadrants of surrounding those circles all influence the, the circle at the same time. The first of the four quadrants is awareness. Examples of this awareness for teachers are knowing your own cultural knowing your own cultural lens and knowing and recognizing your own your own brain's triggers about race and culture. The second quadrant is learning partnerships. Some examples of learning partnerships for teachers are are balancing and giving students both care and push. Another example is give students language to talk about their learning moves. The third quadrant is information processing. An example for teachers to support this is to provide students authentic opportunities to process and teach students cognitive routines using brain using using brain natural learning systems. The fourth and last quadrant is community of learners and learning environment. Teachers are able to support students in this by making space for students' voice and agency and use classroom rituals and routines to support a culture of learning. More information and examples can be found on how students can support student-centered learning can be found on the Ready for Rigor website. The fifth part of our podcast is about cognitive neuroscience. This is called, How Does All This Relate to Neuroscience and SEL? As said by Zaretta Harmon's webinar on culture-responsive teaching, in the brain, it all begins with trust, the trust of the student. The hormones that mainly affect students in the classroom are cortisol, which is the stress hormone that indicates the fight or flight, dopamine and serotonin, which makes the brain more approachable for learning, and oxytocin, which makes the brain want to connect with others. When students have dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin in their brain, they are more likely to make greater connections in learning. How else does the brain affect learning? Zaretta Harmon says that the amygdala is the safety threat detector, which means it's on the lookout for situations that the brain deems dangerous. Dangerous can be physical situations, social situations, or emotional situations. When the amygdala gets activated by high levels of cortisol, it can cause a student to react in ways that the brain thinks will keep it safe. Students can react in different behaviors, outbursts, any other things that they, the brain deems will keep them safe. Ways to help students who are in that protection mode. It goes back to what she said in the beginning is by building trust. By building trust and confidence in the students, that fight or flight mode decreases and offers more opportunities and connect for connections and learning. Our part six, language and the brain structure. 
So there's an understanding that students who are raised in bilingual households' brains are wired differently. Why is that? The article, How Language Shapes the Brain by Syria, Syria Havikwa and Veronica Marina explains that infants are born with the ability to recognize languages, but as the, different languages, but as they grow, they start to focus on the, the main language that you use in the household, which is just one language. So the brain strengthens and connects to that main language and all the others languages that infant experiences, quote unquote, get pruned. But for students who are bilingual and grow up in a household with two languages, the brain strengthens its neural pathways for both languages. This can affect the students past their infancy. It can enhance their ability to take in large amounts of information at a time. The way that students' pathways develop shape how they view the world around them. Part six and seven of our podcast is how does language connect to culturally responsive teaching? Each student communicates differently, not just with language, but with communication styles. As educators, it's important for us to encourage these diverse and different ways of expression. Different cultures express communication in ways that may not be familiar to us, but it's our responsibility to support and encourage those students to express themselves in whatever way they need or want to. Part eight is our conclusion. In this podcast, we've discussed what culturally responsive teaching is, how the brain affects culturally responsive teaching in students, and how language is developed by the brain and how language and communication can support and affect culturally responsive teaching. My question for you, listener, is how are you going to change the world or just one student's world with the knowledge that you have learned today? Thank you for listening to my podcast.